0: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. They're where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, where you rest and recharge, where you work and play. And that's why at Home Advisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running. Whether you need to repair an overloaded appliance or you're looking to create a backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, use the Home Advisor app day or night and we'll find a local pro to get the job done right. Whatever you need, we'll do everything to fix your, well, everything. Download the Home Advisor app to get started. Root of Evil is a production of
1: C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, in partnership with TNT. This story contains strong language and graphic and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is advised.
2: I've never had a problem telling my story. It's not something I've hid. I'm not ashamed of it. And it's actually kind of a little bit of a joke when somebody ever tells me they had a hard time growing up, and I'm all like, wait, wait. I'm already going to tell you I win. <laughs> it is what it is, you know? It's, it's, uh... It's, It's a lot easier to get stronger from something than it is to dwell in the hate of something. It's been easier for me because otherwise I'd be really fucked up. If I could say anything to Tamar right now, I would tell her, fuck you. You know, how dare she treat her children this way.
3: Back in episode 3, we told you that George Hiddell named his daughter Tamar after a famous poem with dark themes of incest. And then, when she was 14, he got her pregnant, was brought to trial, and was ultimately acquitted. For Tamar, nothing would ever be the same.
4: On this episode the ripple effect, and how our grandmother, Tamar Hodel,
3: continued the awful cycle. This is Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. I'm Rasha. And I'm Yvette. And we're your hosts.
1: So, one of the things that I've never made public is the fact that Early on, after Dad's death, I had a lot of phone conversations with Tamar.
3: This is our great-uncle, Steve Hodel. Tamar was his half-sister. They lived together briefly in the Franklin House in Hollywood back in 1949. That was the year of the incest trial, the year their father, George Hodel, got Tamar pregnant. After the trial... Stephen Tamar barely spoke for 50 years, until 1999, when George died peacefully at 91 years old.
1: This is the first time we ever started communicating back and forth. And of course, the first revelation she reveals to me was the fact that our dad was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. So that was the first huge shock to me. And it eventually would start me along with a bunch of other things on the path of a real investigation. But anyway, we're talking about the old man initially about what a remarkable, wonderful person he was. And talking about his life in general and how much we both respected him and setting aside the incest thing. She still had a tremendous love for him and and all of this. And then... On one of the early conversations, again, out of nowhere, she says to me, well, Steve, first of all, she says, let me tell you how sorry I am for the whole sex thing we had. And I said, what are you talking about, (laughs) Timler? What are you talking about? And she says, well, about when we had sex at the Franklin house. I had no memory of this. And I said, we had sex? She says, yeah, we had actual sex. Uh, and I want to apologize for that. I, it's, I've been, it's been bothering me for my whole life, and I, it was very wrong, and it was, you know. This would have been the summer of 49, so I would have been eight years old. She would have been 13 or 14. And uh, I had no recall of this. I guess I just blanked it out, you know, to this day. I don't remember it.
5: People who have been traumatized have been found sometimes... With awareness and sometimes outside of awareness, doing things that sort of replicate what happened to them. And it's seen as an attempt at mastery of what happened in the past, but it's doing it through action and not doing it deliberately facing what happened to one's own self. And so it's a sign of unfinished business in many ways that's just being extended to other people. And we call that traumatic reenactment. This is
4: world renowned psychologist and author, Dr. Christine Courtois. Dr. Courtois specializes in family trauma and adult survivors of incest. And her first major book published in 1988 was called Healing
5: the Incest Wound. You're talking essentially about boundaries not being taught who it's appropriate to have sex with or who it's not. And sometimes, ironically, in abusive families, the families have too strong boundaries to the outside, and they don't interact with other people in normal ways and end up over-interacting within the family, including sexually. That's one of the things that can happen in Families that are incestuous is they keep apart and sort of secretive from the rest of the world. And when somebody gets to the point of seeing it as abnormal and really understanding that they were abused and exploited and the scales fall from their eyes, those particular times can be enormously emotionally difficult because what happens is Grief overtakes them. They realize how badly they've been used by someone that did it in the name of love. So it can be very overwhelming. And there's suicide that's often implicated in these cases or suicidality often is a behavioral expression of wanting to die or playing out that the individual was mistreated by someone and treated as though they didn't exist or as though they were an object. And so they're playing that out and trying to off themselves as a result of that. Another dimension that we haven't talked about is the use of drugs and alcohol. And by my reckoning, I think that there's a lot more addiction in these family dynamics than has been recognized or continues to be recognized. And I'm not using addiction as an excuse for incest because they're two different things. But when you've got parents who are addicted to alcohol or other drugs, they're only part-time parents if they're parents at all. And so there's all kinds of danger and chaos reigning that can be inclusive of losing sexual boundaries and creating the kind of chaos in the family.
3: About a year after the incest trial, Tamar had gotten pregnant again, this time with our mother, Fauna Hotel, who was given away at birth to be raised as a biracial girl in Nevada. As for Tamar, that's when things began to spiral out of control. She was brought by her mother to Mexico to try to forget about giving Fauna away. But while she was there, she attempted suicide by taking sleeping pills. Then she came back to Los Angeles.
6: Well, first of all, she was incredibly beautiful. She looked like Marilyn Monroe.
3: That's our great Uncle Kelly. In episode three, he spoke about growing up in the Franklin house with George. He's Steve Hodel's younger brother by 11 months and Tamar's younger half-brother by seven years.
6: I have pictures of her that show her. And, you know, you'd say, is that Marilyn Monroe? She also was very intelligent and uh, articulate and also very hip and new world. And she was in a world of folk music and after-hour bars and drugs It was all, you know, to a young teenager, just absolutely fascinating. I actually moved in with her when I decided to drop out of high school. And we were going to move her from Hollywood to Silver Lake. And everything was packed up and there were boxes everywhere. And the only place I could sleep was in the bed with her. So I got in the bed, and I have my jeans on. And she says, uh, we're brother and sister. You don't need to wear your your pants in here. So I take them off. And I'm laying in bed with her. And I'm watching her breasts rise and fall under this little uh, baby blue nightgown. And uh, I'm very turned on, but I'm not making any moves or anything like that. And then I look up at her, and she's smiling at me. So we just roll together. And, uh, of course, this is my first time, but she doesn't know that. Afterwards, she says, that was pure need. And I said, yeah, it was my first time. And she said, what? I said, yeah, that was my first time. There was never really a big sexual thing, but there was an emotional thing because you never forget the first woman in your life. During this time, Tamar
4: had her second daughter, Deborah Elizabeth, or Debbie as she was called then. Deborah Elizabeth was born in 1954, just three years after our mother Fauna was given away at birth. Mom spent the first 21 years of her life picturing what it would be like to be with her real mother. But remember back in episode one, when I said that my mom was saved by the ghetto? Here's Deborah Elizabeth. She was raised by Tamar.
7: You can break anybody with lack of love. Because love is the key to make people whole. Tamar obviously got broke. Why she uh, was so mean to me, I think she took out all her pain on me. And I was foolish enough to keep trying to fix her, which is why I was so much a victim. You couldn't have a more understanding daughter than I was, willing to do anything for her because she was in such pain. I believe she was a god. She was so beautiful. She self-medicated. She first was a drinker when I was a little girl. And then she did speed, and she'd send me down when I was five and six years old to the corner drugstore to pick it up for her. In later years, she took out a false name for me to go pick up speed for her. She tried to commit suicide a few times when I was very young. I remember blood on the walls because she tried to slash her wrists. And then when Michelle was there, she tried to take a second all, and she took enough to die
3: Michelle is Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, one of the most well-known bands of the 1960s. Michelle was nine years younger than Tamar, and she describes Tamar in her autobiography, California Dreamin', as her, quote, very best friend who got me interested in folk music or at least into folk music people. As soon as I set eyes on her, I thought she was the most fabulous, glamorous girl I'd ever met. She gave me my first fake ID, my first amphetamines, and we became very close. And now she was my idol. Then Michelle writes about Tamar, quote, "She decided to commit suicide. She told me that whatever anyone might do to try to prevent it, she would succeed. Michelle goes on to say, quote, she made some kind of plan for me to take over responsibility for Debbie, her small daughter. She put it down on paper that Debbie, then five, and asleep in the next room, would be transferred to my custody when I became 18. This done, I assisted her in taking 48 second all.
7: Michelle was going to let her die and then take me to live with her. And I'll be honest, and I know that'll sound crass. When Michelle said she would take me, oh, I wanted to go with her. Because she was so good to me. That in my little mind, I didn't want my mother to die. I just wanted to go with Michelle. Michelle.
3: An ambulance was called, and they said that if it had come 30 minutes later, Tamar would have died. But she recovered, and the focus of her abuse shifted from herself to her daughter. And it kept getting more disturbing and more bizarre.
0: We expect a lot from our homes. They're more than a place to hang your hat. Your home is where you try your hand at gardening and new recipes, rest and recharge, work and play. And that's why at Home Advisor, we're committed to keeping your home up and running no matter what. From the projects that creep up on you, like appliance repairs, gutter cleanings and faucet fixes, to the ones you look forward to, like creating your very own backyard retreat worthy of a summer staycation, We'll find local pros to help you get the job done right. Use the HomeAdvisor app, day or night, to get matched with the best pros for your projects. You can book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, see the tasks trending in your neighborhood. Whether you need a last-minute fix, routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, HomeAdvisor is standing by, ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app today to get started.
7: I felt so uncomfortable and scared all the time. Not knowing why. She'd already molested me, but I had blocked it out. I didn't know what actually happened to me until I was in my 20s or 30s. Because I kept having nightmares, nightmares. I was uncomfortable when the dentist would go into my mouth certain things that I had blocked out, and I still don't know about that one. But that went away, oddly enough, when my mother confessed to me, and she's never confessed to me about any abuse, only that one. Because I called her up crying. I said, I keep having this nightmare, this nightmare, this nightmare. What happened to me when I was really young that I can't remember? And for some reason... She admitted to me that she molested me when I was five, 10, and 11 after I'd had eye surgery. I said, Why did you do that? She said, I wanted to comfort you after surgery. And then there were the doctors that she would send over that weren't doctors, obviously. And she said they're doing a GYN examination on me. They're psychopaths and they're sociopaths. And I tried to figure out which one my mother was. Money is what motivated Mother and... She would do anything to get it. So my sexual abuse was based on money and she would do anything. In my case, she took me out of school and, and uh, I was sold and raped and abused since I was five until I was 15 and I had my own son. But from the time I was five, Tamar molested me. And then there were the men and there were women. But the difference about the women is that when I was terribly freaked out and scared and cried, they stopped and let me just spend the night. And then the men, she would send me usually for a weekend. And Nothing was discussed about what happened. She would just send me and say, you're just so intelligent and smart and you're so charming. They just want to talk to you. It was scary, but I was doing what she wanted. And for a little while, when I came back, I was her hero.
5: Here's Dr. Courtois again. The parent or the abuser is often very skilled at creating an atmosphere and using the need for attention and love to gain whatever they want from the child and to put the child in a position of doing these things, even if it's against the child's wishes or morals. I mean, some children are old enough, they have morals, they know it's wrong, but they're in a position of being forced or doing it anyway because they're being compelled to. And the threat of abandonment or the threat of not being loved, may be used against them very effectively. Some children are also, and this gets into the more sadistic end, some children are told repeatedly, if you don't do what I want you to do, you'll be hated. Although incest doesn't usually involve those kinds of threats or the use of force, in some cases it does. And that just seals it even more and creates a condition of great fear. Whereas being brainwashed without the fear, without necessarily the fear of something physical happening, can just be creating great confusion in the child or the child becomes convinced, this is what I have to do for love. Tamar was
4: a master at manipulation. She learned from the best. Her father, George Hodell and she talked to Debbie about George often.
7: She always told me he loved her, and it was a love affair between them, and she was in love with him. It was like she didn't feel she was raped or anything. She felt that it was a love thing. When I was little... You know, I would run up to him and hug him. I had no reason to fear him, because that was before I heard the story about what he did to Mom. You know, I was very, very young. And we would not see him for years. I mean, it was like there'd be three or four years before we'd see him again. He was the kind of man that when he'd come visit the house, he would keep a taxi waiting all day in front of the house just so that everybody in the neighborhood knew there was somebody very important visiting. That's the kind of man he was. As I was reaching 12, 13, he would start asking me very bizarre questions. Like one time he asked me, um, or was an order, I'm sorry, not questions, orders. I wanted 12 page essay on why men like women's breasts. That's all he said to me and walked on to see mom. And I didn't know whether I should actually do it or not, but everything he asked me to do always depended on my mom getting her inheritance. So when he stopped talking to mom for some reason, he would only talk to me The only way she would get money from him if he could talk to me. Little did I know he was setting me up for him to do the same thing to me at that point.
4: George came to visit, and Tamar set up a lunch just for him and his granddaughter at his hotel.
7: So... I went to lunch, it was like one thirty in the afternoon and he gave me a drink and all of a sudden I felt really woozy. I mean, we were in a hotel with waiters and everything and I felt very woozy and then he called somebody and says, my granddaughter is sick, we need to go to the room. And then I was blacking out in the room. And I kept waking up, and he was in different forms of undress. Every time I woke up, and he had a camera. I was totally naked, I was spread eagle and so forth. And I don't know what he did to me. I don't know if he... I don't know what he did. I remember the dress I was in, which was a green velvet dress, which I didn't come back in, by the way. I came back in his trench coat. And my mother... Years later, when I kept telling her, she says, oh, that's why he came back for his coat and a roll of film. When she finally admitted it, that she knew. I didn't fully get the impact to my therapist said, you were in a cult of one. You know, I didn't fully get the impact. So it's like I had everything thrown at me except Fire. She literally did everything to me but fire. I can't think of a thing that happened. I constantly watch horror movies, and I read dysfunctional families, keep looking for somebody who had it more bizarre than I did.
4: Tamar's extreme abuse of Debbie was constant. And Tamar would always talk about her long-lost baby girl, Fauna, and how much love she was sending out to her wherever she was. And when Debbie was 12 years old, she started asking her mother for something she thought would help them both.
7: My mother hated me. And she kept telling me about her adopted daughter, Fauna. And she cried over her and I couldn't take it anymore. And I thought, well, maybe if I could become Fauna, her long-lost child, she'd love me more. So I kept asking if I could be Fauna. Of course, I, I never knew I'd ever meet my sister. So she finally gave in. And when we moved to Hawaii, it was my chance for everyone to know me as Fauna. It was a rebirth for me. I wasn't Debbie anymore. The abused, sexually abused and all else. I was a new person. I was a reborn person. Well, my mother didn't love me anymore. And the abuse continued. But at least I felt like a new person. And then years later, Fauna did come into the picture. And unbeknownst to my understanding, I had hurt her deeply by being the same name. And I understand it when she finally told me this story which was the only thing she had growing up was her name on the certificate that belonged to her was Fauna Hodel. And when she came to meet us the first time, when she finally told me the story, that she found what she was supposed to be, because on her certificate it said father was Negro and uh, she was Fauna, Hodel, and then she came back and found a sister that really was mixed, and now was named Fauna, and I couldn't explain to her what was ripped out of me, and that I couldn't be Deborah. And it couldn't be Elizabeth because Elizabeth was named after Elizabeth Short because my grandfather insisted that my middle name be Elizabeth after Elizabeth Short. So I couldn't be Deborah and I couldn't be Elizabeth, so I had no place to turn. And no matter how many ways I explained it, I couldn't appease the hurt she had. And I couldn't explain the hurt I had. And I explained it to Rasha after I fully understood my deep hurt myself. And she said, well, if he explained it to mom that way, she would understood. But I tried to explain it every way I could, but Fauna's hurt was too deep. It was like I stole something from her, which I never meant to do. I tried to explain, well, I think we're in kinship. It's a blessing. We're both fauna. It makes us closer. But I could never get her to see it that way. So it was always a wall between us.
4: By the time Mom had come back into the picture... Her sister, Fana, too, was out of Tamar's house. But her brothers, peace, joy, and love, were still there. There were no fathers in the picture, and the cycle continued.
8: My name is Peace on Earth Hodel, Tamar Hodel's son, Fana Hodel's brother. And, uh, yeah, that's me. I'm the oldest of Tamar's sons. There's a lot of questions as to why things happen in our household that anybody in their right mind, quote-unquote, wouldn't have ever done this or experienced that. But in a Hodel family, that's kind of more common. To be put in a situation of being uncomfortable, awkward, and it being the norm. It's just really a story that uh, I think... As more and more stories are told, you start to see linkages to just unhealthy family behavior, which uh, happens in everybody's family, but ours just happens to have been at a very extreme of that. And, you know, I personally am glad to be here, but I really don't think Tamar should have had kids. She'd have a lot of older adult friends around us, kids, and uh, having guys or girls, either way, coming on to me, doing sexual behaviors towards me, and me having to defend myself, or being like, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? I almost felt like, uh, at times, being experimented on, like a lab rat where you know uh, she put you in a a really awkward positions with people you didn't know and kind of thrust uh, some idea of what she thought was appropriate behavior which it wasn't sexually speaking and where you're put in a position where you start going oh my god what's going on with me i feel victimized and then you start questioning your own sexuality about like what's appropriate what's okay do i feel right about this why do i feel this way there's no purpose for it there's no context no education it's just experimented on it's just let's see how crazy this can get and be okay with it it made you especially as a teenager Like when you start to figure out who you are and and how you express your own feelings towards the opposite sex or the same sex for that matter, just being, you know, challenging what you think is normal. Just because you're trying to figure that out, you don't know what it is, and there's no one to give you guidance about what's okay and what's appropriate. It was just you know, let it be what it is and who cares and, you know, the ramifications, it doesn't even matter. Like, she didn't have any concern for that. You're supposed to be protected by your mother and you're made to to do things or be around people that you really know you don't feel comfortable with and they're not even challenging what your mother's doing, they're going along with it and it's like one big happy party for them, and
2: you're in the middle of it being victimized. Okay. Um, my name is Joy to the World Hodel. I am the middle son of Tamar out of her three boys. I remember being five or six, and nobody could feed me because everybody was so fucked up. My mom was high... People that were at the house were high. I don't remember where my sister was. I just remember being right at that age where I really couldn't take care of myself. There was three or four adults in the house and nobody could take care of the kids. I think at that time, my mom was doing a lot of uh, uppers and downers. I also remember everybody sitting in a circle and a bong or a joint being passed around and it being given to us kids. There was always sex around. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I walked in and, one, seen my mother having sex with somebody else. Two, seeing other people have sex with somebody else. I remember we were living in Lanikai and uh, I had a crush on the neighbor girl and her and I had uh, gone down to Lani Kai Beach and we we used to call it oofing. That's what we called it at the time was oofing. And I was young. I might have been in kindergarten or first grade. And uh, I was trying to oof her under the catamaran down at the beach and her dad came down there and just freaked out. You know, I was trying to have sex with her. But, I mean, to me, I didn't know it wasn't something that I couldn't do
9: or I shouldn't do. Because it was so prevalent in our house. The first time I had sex, I was young, 16, 15. Because it was so kind of, like, spoken about or done, so I thought it was, like, a natural thing.
4: This is Love Hotel. He's the youngest of Tamar's five children.
9: Anyway, my first time having sex, it was this girl who is my like, buddy. We were fooling around, which led to sex. And I guess the whole time, the door was open a little bit, and mom was watching the whole time. And I didn't find this out until I was 30-something. And I was like, ew,
3: what the fuck?
9: I just said, Mom, that's not cool. You know, that's just, it's not right. What I did at that young age wasn't right anyway, you know, I don't think. But we were just young and dumb. And, uh, oh, no, it's... It's beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift. It's not a fucking gift having sex at a young age. I think it's just a bonus in a relationship, personally. I think it stems to Grandpa. He taught her it's okay to have sex in general. She told me before in the past when she was on the stand in court, Speaking about, you know, her dad having these uh, sexual relations with her, she she didn't really know any better. For starters, she said, you know, George said, I'm giving a gift of love and affection towards you, so she thought it was okay. That's just a sad thing to hear. It's just sad. like Honestly, right now, I'm just trying my best to keep I don't I just don't want to cry about it because not because she's my mom, but for anybody to go through that and tell the story. Nobody should have to tell the story. So we shut her up. You know, a lot when she was trying to explain. Like she'd start to go into detail and he would like touch me or put his hand. We'd be like, okay, anyway. Or just bring something else up or talk about the beach or blah, blah, blah. Because she had no filter. And she'll just go ahead and tell it to you. And it's so strange she would tell things in such an open way that I think could rob a younger person of their childhood. I remember
2: her telling me the story about how George had sex with her and about how he was the best lover she'd ever had. And I just remember thinking, why are you telling me this?
9: It almost seemed like bragging. None of these things you should be telling your children.
8: Even though she was a victim, she never could make the connection of being a victim and at the same time giving it to us and making it part of our lives and continuing the cycle. I was very combative in the sense that like, if something wasn't logical and didn't make any sense and it was detrimental to our well-being as a family, I would be the first one to say, hey, listen, this isn't a good idea. I would say something. And her means of discipline was ridiculing you, calling every name in the book, throwing stuff at you, calling the police, putting you in juvenile hall. I was uh, in a wheelchair at one point after a surgery learning to walk again and being captive to her saying, I'm calling the police, you know, standing by the door. And I'm in a wheelchair. Obviously I can't go anywhere. She calls the police. I'm going to juvenile hall in a wheelchair. She called the police many, many times. I can't even count how many times.
2: When they first started coming to our place, they thought we were just the worst kids ever. And then when we started telling him, no, you know, I mean this is because of this. And, you know, um they that they, they used to show up and beg us to apologize to her and say we'd be good because they didn't want to take us. But, you know, uh, I can't even count how many times I was in juvenile hall or peace. I'm not even sure love ever went. I don't think he was a, he was a better kid than me, peace. <laughs>
9: My brothers, they tell me that they protected me. I was the last of the litter, and they really shielded me from a lot of the dark side of the family. And I agree a little but disagree a lot because I was still in it. I still seen it. I still heard it. I was around it. I mean, you know, my mom was nuts. The more and more I learned growing up, I just thought, wow, I'm from a really dark family that's got a lot of fucked-up, weird things that I don't even know about. I didn't get it as bad as Peace and Joy, and those guys will attest to it. I had it, for the most part, the least. Um, Well, one thing that sticks with me, and I'll never forget it. um, Mom was a gypsy, moved around a lot. And we're at this point... uh, I must have been 13 or 14 years old, and we were in between homes, so I was gonna go stay with quote, unquote, Uncle Uncle he was a spiritual guide. And I remember one night, I'm sleeping in bed in like a side cottage. And I don't know what time of morning it was, could have been two or three in the morning. I feel as I'm laying on my back, it was a small like a massage table, so I had to keep everything real still. And I was out cold and I felt something touching or grabbing to like my button of my my pants. And instant freaking animal ears like hello? Like, hello, any anybody there? And then there was this dark figure, the silhouette. It was all the lights were out, slowly moving away from me. And like, step back, and am like, hello? Like, am I dreaming? And then that figure reversed back. And then that was it. I don't know, years later, I mentioned it to mom because I was thinking, after learning all about mom's incest and what she put fauna through and how she was a gypsy getting through life, I almost felt that I was a... uh, It was like I was a, a pawn for what she wanted, and she was giving... I was like a little bit of food going into a wild animal's bowl. You know what I mean? You know, have some of that. And then do what I want, and then you have some more of that. Since that moment, I was always apprehensive about anything, sleeping anywhere. It made me feel a little bit, you know, guinea pigged, like my brothers would say, like an experiment. Not until probably my mid-30s to early 40s This when I really started to realize there was a possibility that mom was putting all of us at harm with an intention, with a motive. Financial motive. The realization was, oh, God. Mom was using us, trying to, subject us to, I guess, sexual favors. I can't put it any more blunt.
2: Basically, my mom sold us. There's no two ways about it. She was turning her children over to strangers. We're so lucky that worse things didn't happen to us, three boys growing up.
9: I realized that, wow, mom's pretty fucked up. She's really demented. Well, you gotta understand, I had a little bit of compassion in my mind at the same time because she was taught that. She didn't know better. And they say, and Joy will attest to this, you probably talked to him, everybody has a choice. And everybody does have a choice, we all know that. But when you're that battered, you don't know the right choice. You're just freaking surviving.
2: She was unwell. She didn't have a moral compass. She had one unique ability, and that was to uh, justify everything inside her own head, no matter how bad it was.
8: It's like a love-hate relationship, you know? It's instinct to love your mother. But I also hated her, too. Our values didn't matter. The outcomes of our lives was secondary to hers. Very much like George was in her life. Whether I graduated from high school it didn't matter. I was the first one in our family to get a college degree, and that I got married and had a child. It was secondary to what she wanted, and it was never really a healthy relationship. And I always struggled with her not being able to see that without having it spelled out to her. And still, it was this like, who cares kind of an attitude. I mean, when I think of how I am as a father, I go crazy thinking about how I can be a better father, what I could have done or what I should do in the future. And I don't even give thought to myself about my own well-being. And that's the difference between Tamar and me in the sense that when it comes to being a parent, I think that's your primary role is to make sure... The kid's safe, she's on track for what she needs, and that you're there for her regardless. Irrespective of what the kid does, there's that unconditional love that's not just in words and a nice phrase to say, unconditional love and all that, but that you're really there for them and that they know it.
7: So many people bury this understandably because there's shame. Why people take so long to talk? I'm 63 years old now, and I had the abuse from 5 to 15. But uh, the repercussions of it is because you spend the rest of your life thinking you can bury it. I can bury it. It happened, but it's not me. I can bury it. I can deal with it. Nobody's going to believe me. And certainly nobody wants to hear about it. And if they hear about it, what will they think of me? No one's going to want to marry me. I can't do anything about it. I can't put these people in jail. I'm helpless. My hands are tied. So that's why these victims suffer. You're damaged goods. Get away from me. I don't want to hear your story. So it festers and you try and bury it. But then the dark night comes on. And there's the triggers. And you bury it. You bury it. I can overcome it. I'm over it. I can do it. Then you hear a rustle in the bushes, and you go, (gasps) You can't bury it. No matter how hard you try, it's burying yourself. And the worst part is that part of yourself, it's like losing an arm and a leg and another leg, but nobody can see it. It's not right. And people want to just look away. You have an accident on the road and there's the looky lose. Oh, yeah, that's fine. But tell me you're about your pain? Mm hmm. Don't want to hear it. You're damaged. That's what has to happen. Every person that has gone through it has to tell. I feel empowered because I'm able to tell the truth. And I think for every victim, you'll find that's going to be true. Because they can stop hiding it. They can stop feeling shame.
3: Yvette and I love our Aunt Fauna, too, and our uncles, peace, love, and joy. And it's been really hard for us to hear their stories. We knew how manipulative our grandmother was firsthand, but we didn't know the extent of her abuse toward her children until we began doing this podcast. Thankfully, they're wonderful parents, successful people, and full of love. The cycle hasn't continued, but our family is a good reminder of how trauma, if not dealt with properly, can be passed along to the next generation. Here's Dr. Courtois for the final
5: message. If you find yourself in a circumstance like this, if you are currently in one, if you know about one, if you were in one in the past. Help is available in all of these circumstances. And the first resource that I would recommend to you is the organization RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, Rape and Incest Network. And the number is 800-656-HOPE. If you're an adult survivor and you're looking back or you're being plagued with nightmares or feelings, there is help for you. You can also go through your state psychological association or social work association and look up therapists who specialize in trauma and then ask specifically about incest or child sexual abuse. Those areas are specialized, so you don't want a general trauma person You need to have someone who does know about how to treat those issues. There is help out there and you're not alone.